0: Good morning all. It's good to see you today. It's uh, that Sunday of the month where we take the Lord's Supper together. And so if on the way in you did not grab a communion packet, this would be your opportunity to do so. We have two options back there. One is uh, the ones that we have prepared. Those are uh, gluten-free. And so if you need that or if you're looking at this little tiny thing and wondering, am I going to be able to get that open without spilling it all over myself? We also have our options that we've put together in the back. So I'm going to risk this one. I probably won't get anyone wet uh, or messy except myself. And uh, uh, so, anyway, that's uh, for you. And we will uh, come to that towards the close of our service. We are going to be studying today from Matthew chapter 2. However, before we get there, I want us to read together from probably the most famous psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23. And then once we read that, we will go to uh, the New Testament. But we're first going to read from Psalm 23, familiar to all of you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And from Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, come into your presence as a group this morning and we worship you. We acknowledge that you are God, you are sovereign, you are our creator, you have always existed, you are unchanging, you are high and lifted up. You inhabit eternity. And we praise you that you also dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we confess that we need you and we need this message that your word has for us. We need this shepherd this passage speaks of. So, Father, I pray that you would help us at this time to set aside those things that would distract us, the the demands of life that are real and true and, and exist and they affect us. But in these minutes, I pray that you would help us to set that aside, that we would look into your word, And that you, by your spirit, would speak from your word to us. We pray for your help this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I read from Psalm 23 this morning, uh, not only because the title of our message today is The Shepherd of Christmas, but uh, because Psalm 23 gives a picture of the Lord as the shepherd of the people. And in the Old Testament, Israel often referred to their leaders as shepherds. And that shouldn't really surprise us when we think about who their greatest king was. That was King David. And King David, uh, in his formative years, was a shepherd. And he's referred to as the shepherd of Israel. He's a shepherd not just who raised sheep and and all of those things as a boy, but he's the one who who protects, takes care of, and provides for, is the shepherd for his people. And so there's this expectation, a common theme in the Old Testament about these shepherds of the people. But the problem is the shepherds were always people. And so no matter who the shepherd was, even if it was someone as great as, as David, no matter who that shepherd was, yet he would let his people down. Eventually, he would fall on his face. Eventually, he would do something that would end up being destructive to the people. And so, as each of these shepherds came, they, uh, they realized, we need a shepherd. And they also realized, that shepherd was only so good. We need a perfect one. We need a greater one. And so they developed this anticipation, this expectation, and the prophets began to speak of a shepherd to come, that God would send the ultimate shepherd, that the Lord himself would be their shepherd, not just from heaven, but he would be their shepherd amongst them to take care of them, to shepherd his people. And he would do so perfectly, and he would not fail. He would not fall flat on his face, nor endanger his own people. And so that's the expectation from the prophets to... Look forward to this shepherd who was to come, one who would take care of his people. Well, when we come to our passage today in Matthew chapter 2 as we're celebrating Christmas, as we're preparing ourselves for it, we we come to a contrast in this passage. A contrast between the shepherd who was to come, the one who was expected, the one who would take care of his people, contrasted with the existing shepherd the existing shepherds of the people. You see, King Herod was one shepherd, but the religious leaders were other shepherds also of the people. And so our passage today is going to show a sharp contrast between the the true shepherd, the true King Jesus, and the shepherds of their day. And so as we turn and look through our passage today, we, we're going to see in the first few verses here that there were Uh, heralds of the shepherd. There were those who who proclaim his coming, who would talk about the fact that he would come. And we want to look at them and see that there were different kinds of heralds. There were different kinds of messengers who were telling the people that this shepherd was going to come. And the first heralds that we read about were informed unexpectedly. You wouldn't have expected these people to have known, and yet they know. As we look at Our first couple of verses, after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. These are are Gentiles from a foreign land. They've come from far away, and they come and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. We saw the signs. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here we're... Surprisingly, unexpectedly informed heralds, these wise men, these Gentiles who had come from afar. And we don't know exactly. We know they came from the east and we know they studied the stars and there's been much speculation about uh, where exactly they came from. And <clears throat> some traditions have, have even named them, <laughs> but we don't know much more than what we read right here. They knew about him. They were informed enough. To be able to look at the stars, which I don't understand, they were able to look at the stars and understand that this king of the Jews had come. He had been born. And so here, the first messengers we run into aren't even Jews, they're not even of the people. They're entirely unexpected, but they are informed. Normally in the Bible, when you think through the history of the Bible, when there's a contest between the magicians of a pagan nation versus the wise men of Israel, the wise men of Israel always went out. If you think about Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was having these dreams, and he didn't know what these dreams meant all the way back in Genesis. And he asked his magicians, and his magicians had no idea. And who ended up interpreting the dream? A little Jewish boy. Well, he was a man by then. Joseph interprets the dream. God gives him the ability to interpret the dream. So here you have the wisdom of the the magicians, of the pagans, comes into contrast and conflict with the wisdom of the Jews, and the wisdom of the Jews wins out. Well, what about during the times of Nebuchadnezzar? In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And he didn't know what they meant either. And so he called his, his magi, he called his magicians, his wise men. And he, 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 uh, they couldn't interpret the dreams either. They couldn't tell him what they meant. And so he calls whom? He calls Daniel, the Jewish man. Daniel tells him what the dreams mean. So here you've got a conflict between the pagan magicians and the Jewish wise man. And the Jewish wise man wins out. But in our context, it's very different. In our context, we're going to see that it's actually quite the reverse, that the ones who show up with the message to say, hey, the the king of the Jews has been born, they're they're the magi. They're from the pagan nation. They're from outside the people. They're bringing word. And the religious leaders, the Jewish wise men, are responding to. They're having to play catch-up with what has been told to them from without. So that's a a definite change of what we expect from the Old Testament when we come to the Magi in the New Testament. So we have that first group there, and they were informed in an unexpected way. We wouldn't expect them to show up. Well, and there's another group of heralds that we read about in our passage, and they are informed but hesitant. The Magi show up, and they say, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. We've come to worship him. In verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, the wise men of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written in the prophet. They were informed, but they were hesitant. You see, when Herod heard this message, he wasn't jumping up and down. He wasn't rejoicing. He, he, was, um, he wasn't Jewish. He was Idumian or Idumian, I don 't even know how to pronounce that. He was a foreigner, a close relative, but uh, but not Jewish himself. He had been put in place as king by Rome. so here Rome, who's ruling, takes this man who who is kind of from the area but not Jewish, and puts him in charge and he's the king of the people. he's been appointed by Rome, and now Herod, who is not a Jew, but is ruling over the Jews and is the king is now told, hey, the king of the Jews has been born. So in his mind, he's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, there's a legitimate heir out there, and I'm not him. So he sees the problem. He is concerned and scared, and we're going to see the political machinations that he goes through in uh, in the next couple of uh, paragraphs. This baby to be born was a threat was a threat to him, was a threat to his power, a threat to his political position. And so he goes to the wise men, the Jewish wise men, the scribes. He goes and he asks them. It turns out they had information that he needed. And they were able to tell him where this child would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, just a few miles away, was where this baby would be born. And so they had information. They they knew what to expect. They knew where this baby was to be born. And so, you have these who should be heralds, the people who were the shepherds of Israel, who should have known what was going on, who should have been able to tell others about the Messiah coming, and they end up receiving the information. They end up hearing from a Gentile source that the king of the Jews has been born. And so, you've got these heralds who are informed they know some things they're able to look it up they're able to look in scripture and see and know but they're going to be hesitant they're going to be hesitant we know about herod's hesitation but it doesn't specifically say in here that the jewish leaders the religious leaders were hesitant or were uh, uh opposed to jesus opposed to this baby but as you think about the course of jesus ministry Jesus had a lot of battles, a lot of arguments in his ministry. And they were usually, almost always, with the Jewish religious leaders. They were the ones who confronted him. They were the ones who would stand against him. You see, they had position too. And they had power too. And they had influence too. And he was a threat to those, just like he was a threat to those of Herod. So you've got these heralds who should have been the ones to be telling the people, or should have been watching and should have known, but they are hesitant about him. And then finally we have the original heralds that are talked about in our passage here. They are informed and expectant that you have these Old Testament prophets who were the original heralds. They were the ones through whom God had spoken his message that, yeah, you've got a king, David or Solomon or, or Manasseh, whoever the king, you've got a king and he is to be your shepherd. But that king that you have as your shepherd will fall. He will fail you. He will actually endanger you. He will actually lead the people into a position where they eventually are going to end up in judgment, are going to end up in exile. And so the... God was saying to the prophets that He was going to give a Messiah. He was going to give a shepherd, a king who would rule His people in justice. He would rule forever. He would rule in holiness and in righteousness. That He would restore justice to the nation. He would restore peace to the nation. He would actually save His people from their sins. And He would give them Life that was the expectation that they had, and the prophet Micah had even told them where this Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, and so God had told his prophets to tell his people, I, I know you have a shepherd, and I know he 's maybe a lousy shepherd if it 's manasseh, i know he 's a great shepherd, but he falls on his faith if he, uh, face if he 's David. But you can look beyond that shepherd to expect a greater one. One who will come for me, who will rule my people in righteousness and justice. And then we turn to verse 6 where we read about the rule of the shepherd. Verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel, Now this is a quotation from Micah we've said that already. If you 'll turn left in your Bible about thirty pages, about thirty pages, you 'll get to Micah. We should have a race to see who can get there first because I would not have won that one we 're in, uh, in Micah, and this is a reference the New Testament is quoting from this. This prophet that was from hundreds of years before, who spoke about this shepherd, who spoke about this Messiah. And in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we read, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient Days And then down to verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So already hundreds of years before this, the Messiah was spoken of, this, this shepherd was spoken of, and he's referred to, first of all, as a rescuer. He's to be a rescuer. Micah spoke during a time of great idolatry and error amongst the people. And he assured them that judgment was coming, that even exile was going to come as punishment for their rebellion, as punishment for their idolatry, for the errors in their worship and in their lives. But even as Micah warned about the judgment that was to come, he also made promises of comfort. Comfort in the midst of that suffering. That he would send one who would stand and would care for his people. And instead of the danger that they faced, the danger that they deserved because of their disobedience, because of their lifestyle, because of their idolatry, instead of that, in that day, they would dwell securely because of the work of God's deliverer. So often in the Bible, when judgment is spoken of, God speaks also of deliverance, even in the midst of that judgment. And he does so here. That instead of war and destruction and danger, he would give them peace in this rescuer. He would give them peace in this one who's going to deliver. And so first of all, this shepherd who's going to come, spoken of from of old, now talked about in Matthew chapter 2. The shepherd who's to come, he's going to be a rescuer. He's going to deliver his people. He's going to bring them from a place of danger into a place of safety. He's going to give them peace. He will be a rescuer. But secondly, he will be a ruler. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. He's to be a ruler. He's to take care of them. He's to lead them. He's to be their king. This, this town that they, uh, that they were to expect him to come from, Bethlehem. There, there wasn't much going on in Bethlehem. There wasn't anything important about Bethlehem except that David had come from Bethlehem. Their greatest king had come from there. But that's history. There's nothing, nothing grand about Bethlehem but this is where the messiah was to come from this is where this ruler was to be born to come from the same place as his father david and this ruler who would be born he would unite his people he would rule over them he would he would be their king he was born king he was born to be the ruler of the people it, it's easy for us it, Christmas time to, to get lost in the fact that Jesus came as a baby. And isn't that cute? Babies are fun and they're cuddly and, and they're cute and they're small and you can kind of hold them in your hand. He came as a baby. And it's easy for us to forget that he's actually the ruler of all things. He's actually sovereign God himself. That actually he is our creator. He's the one who made us. He is, overall, he is in possession of all power and all authority and all dominion. He's not just a baby. He is the baby who is the king. He is the ruler. He is Yahweh, God himself, come in the flesh in the form of a baby. Judgment is given into his hands. That's who this baby is. And so when we celebrate at Christmas time and we think about the baby Jesus and we think about uh, soft and cuddly... We need to remember that he is the ruler. That he is God Almighty come in the flesh. And one day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so, we read, from you, Bethlehem will come a ruler. But he will also be a shepherd. He will shepherd His people, Israel. And the quotation in the New Testament, starting halfway through verse 6, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then you saw when we read back in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 that it did not finish with him being a shepherd. It said, for from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. But then you look down at verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. He's not only a ruler. He's not only the God of all things. He's not only the judge. He's not only the one who is the creator and the sustainer. But he is also the shepherd. He will shepherd my people Israel. The, The word shepherd and the word ruler are referring to the same Thing. They're referring to the same person, but there's a difference, isn't there? They're not exactly synonymous. To say that the king is going to come and rule is different than to say the king is going to come and shepherd his people. There's, a, there's an intimacy. There's a personal aspect to him being the shepherd of the people. He takes care of them. He is on a first-name basis with them. He knows them, and they know Him. There's a different implication to say that He shepherds His people. It's not just distant. It's not just military. It's not just a political might. He shepherds His people. He cares for them Personally, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the strength of the Lord, he will shepherd his people. See, we we get lost sometimes, right, with the baby Jesus, who is also the God of all things, that, that we can get confused and focused on one and forget the other. We can forget that he's the creator of all things since he's just a little cooing baby. But at the same time, when we remember that he's the ruler, we can forget that he's the tender shepherd. And then when we think about him being the tender shepherd, sometimes we can think maybe he's, you know, weak. Maybe, you know, he's 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 just kind of like us, just mushy, right? But he's not. He's the shepherd who is the tender shepherd, who has the might, the strength of God himself. He's a strong shepherd. I, I've never been a shepherd, and I haven't spent time around sheep, But I love listening to David talk about sheep and shepherding. And if you remember back when the giant Goliath in the Old Testament was standing before and mocking the people of Israel, mocking them and their weak God. And he's a big man. He's standing there and he's mocking them and he wants to challenge them to to a duel and no one will come out and duel him because he's a giant. They're afraid of him. And David shows up and David's a young man and David's a shepherd and he reports for duty and he says, I'll go fight him. I'll go fight him. And do you remember what David said? When he volunteered, this is what he said to Saul. This is in 1 Samuel 17. He said, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. So I I know some things about shepherding. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Shepherds aren't wimps. David was not a wimp. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. So a shepherd is not just someone with a flute somewhere, sitting on a hillside entertaining his sheep, sunbathing. He's prepared to do battle. He's prepared to defend these sheep that are his. He cares tenderly for them. He carries them. He nurtures them. He takes them to where there is food and water. He protects them. And when a bear shows up, he kills the bear. That's a shepherd. And this one who is born, who is to be the ruler of the people, he will not only rule them, he will be the shepherd. And he will make them to dwell securely. Insecurity because he has the strength to do so. He protects his own. This is that kind of shepherd. This is that kind of shepherd. This is the ruler that was prophesied in Micah 5. This is the baby that was born to the Virgin Mary in Matthew chapter 1. And he is infinitely greater even than David who was such a good shepherd. And the prophet tells us, Micah does in chapter 5 and verse 4, that he will cause his people to dwell secure. What does that look like? What does it look like to dwell secure? Does that mean financial security? Does that mean physical security? Are we to expect that we as Christians will have security from disease? Does Jesus promise us security from political turmoil? From unrest? No, we will all die one day, unless the Lord returns. And we will face illness, and we will face hardship, and we will face suffering, and we will face pain. So if he's going to make his people dwell secure, and yet we're vulnerable to all of these things, what's the kind of security that he gives us? Well, it's the security Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 8, When he says this, starting at verse 31, "...what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword?" yet we will stand secure, we will dwell secure in our relationship with Christ. That the thing that ultimately matters, the thing that matters in the end, is secure. It is fixed, and we stand secure. His love for us is settled and secure. He came to be our great shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's our shepherd. That's this baby who was born. That's the, that's the one that Herod's going to try and hunt down. That's the one we read about, the one we celebrate at Christmas. This little baby born who is that shepherd who causes his people to dwell secure. So that makes you wonder, what kind of reception did Jesus get? What were the responses to this great God-given gift, this shepherd who had come, this fulfillment of prophecy. When he shows up on the scene, what's, what's going to be his reception? What are the responses to the shepherd? Well, verses 7 through 12 give us some responses. And the first is threats. Threats. Verses 7 and 8, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He finds out about it. He's not just curious. This is an idle curiosity. He's trying to ascertain how old is this child? How much time do I have? And then now he knows where the baby was born. So now he's got a demographic that he can go after to wipe them out so that he can keep himself secure in his position. And then he sends the wise men on to Bethlehem. Yeah, go ahead and go find him. Do all the work of finding him. And worship him. And then come back and tell me so I can come and worship him too. He wasn't looking to worship him. In just a couple of paragraphs down in in Matthew chapter 2, we see what he's going to do. He's going to commit infanticide. That he's, he's going to go to the Bethlehem and he's going, to, he's going to put all of Jesus' peers to death. The initial reception is threats. That's one response that he gets, but there's another response. The response of worship. We continue reading in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshiped him now i'm not i'm not too concerned about uh, we're not we're not talking about the star today and and uh, how that all worked out i don't know but The miracle of the second person of the Trinity, Creator God, taking on flesh, becoming man, is so far greater than the appearance of a star that moves and settles and leads is nothing in comparison to the Incarnation so I'm I'm not concerned about the star, nor is it uh, the point of what we're talking about today. But they followed the star. They rejoiced to see the star. They came to a house. When they got to the house, they go inside and they see the baby. They see Jesus. And they see Mary. And they fall down and they worship that child. They give worship. That's the proper response. Jesus. That's the proper response to the Son of God who has taken on flesh is to fall down and to worship. He's, He's born King of the Jews and yet here are people who are not Jews coming and worshiping Him. That's because He's not only the King of the Jews. He's the King of kings. He's the King of all. He's the Lord of all and so they fall down and they worship Him and what they understood I don't know. But their worship was right and it was good. And one day all the nations will come and will bow down before him. He's the the king of all and he deserves worship from all. But so often our response can be different. The proper response to Jesus is not curiosity. He's not a kind of interesting oddity or a matter for cold intellectual dispute. Or contemplation. And the proper response to Jesus is not simple admiration. The Lord is not a positive role model. He's not some exemplary historical figure that, that we might emulate. That's not who Jesus is. We are not called to be his fans. We are called to be his worshipers. The proper response to Jesus is always Worship. And in this passage, it's not the religious leaders who are doing so, but it's the Gentiles who have traveled from a far country bowing down and worshiping this child. And whatever your background, whatever my background, whether Jew, Gentile, no matter what my background is, the proper response to Jesus is for me to worship him. So the second response is worship and then there's a third response of gifts gifts so they fell down they worshiped him verse 11 then opening their treasures they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh i'm not going to talk about what exactly those things mean or their value necessarily or anything like that but i want to notice first of all the gifts come after the worship The gifts come after the worship. The gifts are not given as a means of trying to buy the favor of the Lord. We can't purchase His favor. There's nothing that we could give, no, no matter how costly, no matter how valuable to me or to other people that would purchase the grace of Jesus. We can't purchase it. It's not for sale. They come into the house, they see the child, they see the mother, they fall down and worship. That's the first thing they do. And only then do they think to give their gifts. After they have worshipped. After they have come into his presence. After they have worshipped him. And if you think about the gifts, they, they are lavish gifts. This, the, you know, they spared no expense in these gifts. They were giving the best that money could buy. But, but think about this perspective for a moment. Jesus, and I don't know how old he was at this time two or younger, where had he been just a few years before? Before he entered the womb, before the incarnation, where was he? He was in glory. He was in glory. He, he knew what real valuable gifts were. He knew what true wealth was because it was all his. The cattle on a thousand hills, that's his. And so, in contrast, even these gifts, which are great gifts, they are wondrous gifts, yet they don't compare. They're symbolic for the king of kings to receive stuff. Now, they meant it in earnest. They were giving what was good, they were giving what was best, and they were giving what they should have given. But when you think about what God already has. When you think about this Son of God and and where He had just come from, you realize that these gifts are symbolic. They're just symbolic. That these wise men had received infinitely more from this baby than the baby ever received from them. And that's our situation as well. When we realize who He really is, when we realize who this Jesus is and we realize our position before Him, when we come to worship Him, when we trust in Him, when we find in Him that He is our shepherd, He has paid the penalty for our sins, when we find that, we we, we give Him our lives, we give Him our gifts, and we realize, it's all I've got, but compared to what He's given me, it's nothing. And the gifts always come after the worship. They do not purchase the opportunity to worship, when we realize who we are apart from Him and when we trust in Him and become His children, we're happy to give the Lord anything. Anything. He he gave it to us in the first place. And so we respond with gifts to the mercy and the grace that He has already given us. I want to move on to a few points of application here before we go to the Lord's Supper. And any time we come to the point of application in a message, you'll remember that I prayed at the beginning of this message that we would be able to set aside distraction, that we'd be able to set aside life. We don't do that as if life is unimportant. Nor do we do that, nor do we pray that as if what we read today has nothing to do with life. And so we should just forget about life and you can pick up life later on. Now we're here to do our interesting study. No, we, we set aside those things for a time as we study God's Word to see what it says. To see how we can understand who He is better, what He has done for us and who we are in Him. And then once we have that understanding, now we can bring that understanding back to our life and say, here, here are my circumstances. Now, in light of what I have understood from Scripture... How does that help me deal with my circumstances? How does that help me understand and walk through these circumstances of my life? And so that's what we do when we come to the moment of, of application is we have already looked at scripture. We've examined to see what it says and what it, what it has for us. And we've, we've learned about him and who he is and who we are in him. And now we come back and we say, oh yeah, there's an afternoon that I, I go to this afternoon. And there's a tomorrow morning when I go back to work and there's a a life that I'm living with all of its problems, what does this understanding that I've gleaned from Scripture have to do with my life? They are not two separate compartments. One, the Bible informs the other, my circumstances. So what does this have to do with my life? What's the application for us? Number one, you need to realize that you are a sheep who needs a shepherd. You are a sheep who needs a shepherd. Some of you don't know the shepherd at all. Some of you uh, are, are just fine on your own, thank you. And you need to realize that is not the case. You are a sheep. And God has given the shepherd to rescue you, to be your Lord, and to be your shepherd. So you need to look to him. Some of you, yeah, you know the shepherd, but you really do think you've kind of got it together. I mean, he helped you out in a pinch with the whole, you know, paying for your sin thing, but, but you're, you're living your life just fine. Thanks. You need to realize that you too are a sheep, a little lamb who needs that powerful and tender shepherd to care for you. Second of all, think about what reception you give to the Lord Jesus. Which, which of the options, and we only looked at three options of the reception that they gave him, what, what reception are you giving to Jesus? Do you, uh, do you allow uh, Jesus in on your own terms? You're going you're gonna to set the standards for the relationship? DTR, as uh, the young people say, <laughs> define the relationship? Is that, do you get to do that? Is that your reception of Jesus? Is he some kind of a curiosity that you have and, yeah, he's fun to think about and, and it's kind of uh, interesting that way? Is he a helpful addition to your life? That you've got a lot of good things going and Jesus is another one of those good things that you add in. Is that, is that how you receive Jesus? The reception that he ought to have from us is worship. Worship. That's how we should receive him. Thirdly, Christians of all people must know that there is something worse than suffering. Being separated from God is worse than any amount of suffering on this earth. When this shepherd comes and causes his people to dwell secure, that doesn't mean there won't be suffering. It just means that when the suffering comes, he doesn't leave you. He is there with you through that suffering. And Christians of all people need to know this. Our our good shepherd is the one who laid down his life for the sheep. He suffered in our place. And then he calls us into suffering as well. Only he says, I am here with you and I will not leave you. And so you can dwell secure even when it looks like Nothing is secure. And then fourthly, first comes worship and then come the gifts. First is the worship and then the gifts. We don't offer anything to God as a way of purchasing His favor. But once we see who Jesus really is and what He's done, then we fall down and we worship Him. We realize He is my only hope. He is what I need. I must have Him. And so we trust in Him. And then realizing that He is Lord, realizing He's our Savior, that He is our Shepherd, we realize that He's worthy of our devotion, of all of it. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our families. He's worthy of our affection because of the gift that He Has given us. And so as we come to a conclusion, we come to our time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is a celebration of that gift that He gave for us. We celebrate, we remember, we call to mind when He accomplished salvation in His own body on that tree. And so if you would take out the elements. celebration that that we do now is a celebration of a promise that he made. It's a celebration of a work that he accomplished, that he brought to completion when he gave his own life in our stead. And so, of course, this celebration is for Christians. It's for those who have been the beneficiaries of that sacrifice. That payment has been made for us. And so we celebrate, we celebrate. We point to Christ and we remember, we celebrate this promise that he has made to us and this work that he has accomplished on our behalf. And so if you don't know Christ, just, just ignore these elements, listen to the words, and then come ask me afterwards, ask, ask one of us here about what this means, about what it means that you are a sheep who needs a shepherd. So we come to the elements. Paul reflected on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he said in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. And so in a moment, we're going to celebrate this together. Maybe you've struggled to get your thing open. Maybe you did okay. But this is the this is the bread which represents his body. Him giving his own body to be beaten and bruised in payment for the penalty of your sins. And so we celebrate that together. Let's pray. Father, we come to this time in our service when we get to... Hold in our hands a representation, the bread, which represents the body of Christ. It should have been our body, beaten and bruised. We should have borne in our own bodies the entirety of your wrath for our sin. But instead, he took it upon himself. He stood in my place, he gave his body to be broken bruised and killed so that I wouldn't have to, so that your wrath was poured out on him instead of me. So I celebrate what Jesus accomplished in his body on that tree. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next we come to the cup. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands the cup, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. That he gave his own life's blood, poured out for us in order to purchase life for us. This baby, born in Bethlehem, that we read about today, prophesied about beforehand, worshipped when he came and threatened when he came, grew up to minister to his people, to teach them, to be obedient to your law completely. And then to go to that cross, though he was innocent, in my place condemned he stood and gave his own life's blood. Sacrificing his own life, paying that penalty for me, that in him I would have newness of life. I would have his righteous life and his substitutionary payment for my sin applied to my account. Father, we are grateful for Jesus and what He did. We are grateful that He didn't remain a baby in a manger, in a village. But He became our rescuer. He became Our Savior, our Shepherd who gave His own life on that tree, laid down His life for His sheep. And He is Lord. We pray in His name. Amen. Jesus said, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul, Paul concluded, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And then after I dismiss us, there will be a family who will be up front who would love to pray with you. If you have something you want to praise the Lord uh, about or that you want to uh, pray for come up and pray with them. They love that ministry. They love to pray with you and to pray for you It is a blessing to them and it's our prayer that it will be a blessing to you I'd remind you also that we have evening service tonight at six and um, So we will join will be done by seven o'clock And uh, we love to worship together uh, one more time on a sunday. So let's uh, let's pray and then i'm going to dismiss us father we are grateful for this savior who has been born for this one who is the shepherd of christmas who has who has come into this world to shepherd his people primarily by laying down his life for them we are grateful and we will give you thanks forever thank you for your word thank you for your son who gave his life for us. We pray in his name. Amen. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.